All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, you can have a seat. Uh, so glad again uh, that you are here with us today. And man, what, what an unusual time uh, that we find ourselves in. What a historic uh, time that we find ourselves in. You know, there is not much uh, for those of us that have been around for a minute that we can look at and go, huh, I've never seen that happen quite that way before. And we find ourselves um, in, in one of those situations right now. Um, uh, so, so I wanna offer a perspective on that that maybe you haven't considered with all the stuff that's changing and swirling around. Today is a historic day for the church in the United States because for the first time I think ever, there are millions and millions of people who are gathering together online. We're gathering together virtually right in this moment on people's phones and tablets and televisions. People are logging in to churches, their churches, new churches that they haven't experienced before. People are doing this. And what the scripture tells us is that where two or three people gather together in God's name, that he's there showing up in the midst of it. And what a powerful reminder and what a good reminder for us that the church has not ever been defined by the building in which it meets. The church has not ever been defined by how many people you can get in the room. The church has, has always and will always be defined by the presence of God in the hearts of his people, however they gather together. And that is worth celebrating. That is worth recognizing that in this unique moment in American history and in human history, that God is still on the throne. He is still doing his thing and he is still working in the lives of his people and he doesn't even need Wi-Fi to do it. He can do it just because that's who he is. So we celebrate that in the middle of everything that is unique and different about the season we're in, about this moment that we are in right now. So in light of that, in light of everything that is going on in our culture, in light of everyone who is asking the question, what do we do now? Where is God in the middle of all this? What is coming next? We will look to the book of Ezekiel because that's what we're talking about. Um, a priest from a long time ago who was asked by God to do a whole bunch of odd things, to act out a whole bunch of theater, to make a bunch of performances, metaphors, parables, all pointing to the idea that God was judging his people, that God was fighting for his people to bring them back into relationship with him. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, how in the world is this gonna connect in any way to the stuff that we are facing today? Because unless Ezekiel has a whole bunch of hand sanitizer hidden somewhere, I'm not sure that he's the thing that I'm looking for right now. Um, but I'd like you to stay with me for a minute because here's what's great about scripture. The Bible didn't just happen back then. Uh, the Bible happens meaning that all this stuff from then somehow has this way through the Holy Spirit to connect right to where we live right now and to have impact on us. And I think you'll find that as we look at a couple stories from the scripture. So we're gonna look at Ezekiel chapter 24 uh, today. And, and, and this is, uh, this, this story has two parts to it. The, the first part is the latest odd thing that God has asked Ezekiel to act out. And then the second part is a really tragic and heartbreaking thing that happens to Ezekiel. So we're gonna look at these two things and, and we'll see where we go. Ezekiel chapter 24. Um, then give these rebels an illustration with the message, with this message from the sovereign Lord. Put a pot on the fire, 
pour in some water, fill it with choice pieces of meat, the rump and the shoulder, in case you wondered which pieces of meat were choice, always the rump, the rump and the shoulder, and all the most tender cuts. Use only the best sheep from the flock and heap fuel under the fire beneath the pot. Bring the pot to a boil and cook the bones along with the meat. Now, this is what the sovereign Lord says. What sorrow awaits Jerusalem, the city of murderers. She is a cooking pot whose corruption can't be cleaned out. Take the meat out in random order. And I want you to notice this last nine. For no piece is better than another. So God comes to Ezekiel and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a pot, like a nice one. And then I want you to get the best meat you can, the filet mignon, all the good stuff. And I want you to cook it. Big, strong fire underneath the pot. So much that it's burning off some of the residue uh, that's on the inside of the pot, it says later. And then after you cook the meat, the best meat you have, just pull it out, get rid of it. Don't even worry about which pieces you're pulling out first. Don't look for the best steak. Um, just take it out because no piece is better than another. Now you have to remember in context here that God's main message to the people of Israel through Ezekiel is, hey, you've stopped paying attention to me and that's a problem. Um, in this metaphor, in this parable, the, the people of Israel are the choice meat that's cooking inside of the pot. This is God's way of saying to them, look, you guys have believed that you have everything that you need. You have believed that you're in control of your own situation. You have looked at yourself, as weird as it sounds, and said, we're choice meat. We're the best available because we have God. We have the tabernacle. We have God's presence. We have all of these things. And, and somehow along the way, Israel bought into the illusion that they were in control of everything, right? They bought into the illusion that somehow the blessings of God, the benefits of God, the protection of God, all the things that were given to them now made it so that they somehow didn't need him anymore. So they took everything that God had given them and then kind of edged him out, pushed him to the side and said, well, we have this stuff now, so we're good on our own. So God illustrates to them what's about to happen by saying, look, you think one piece of meat is better than another. You think somehow that because you have a pot and you've got some good steaks that you're in control of the situation, but you're not. And I think this has some resonance for us today because we like control. We are good at building pots. We are good at filling them with things that make us feel safe and secure. And why wouldn't we do that? Of course we would. I mean, no one wants to be out of control. Um, we look for plans. We look for preparation. And we believe that if we plan right and if we prepare right, that we'll stay in control, that everything will work the way it doesn't. And we believe that right up until the moment when we aren't in control anymore. And it only takes a couple weeks like the last two to make us go, oh, we're not actually controlling as much as we think we are. We're not really that much better than anybody else, right? If it's just affecting another country way over there, then we don't have to worry about it. But now it's here, so now it's a problem, and now we're not in control. God's trying to say to his people, you have allowed all the benefits I've given you to lull you into this false sense of security. And as soon as those things start going away, you find yourself alone. Why? Not because I've left you, but because you've left me, because you've distanced yourself from everything that I am and everything that I gave you. So that's the first story. And then the second one is this really tragic, sad thing that happens to Ezekiel 
and his, as, as, as he endures the death of his wife. And I want to show you this here. This, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, with one blow, I will take away your dearest treasure. Yet you must not show any sorrow at her death. Do not weep. Let there be no tears. Groan silently, but let there be no wailing at her grave. Do not uncover your head or take off your sandals. Do not perform the usual rituals of mourning or accept any food brought to you by consoling friends. This is a heavy passage here. And Ezekiel loses his wife. And if you read this at first glance, it's easy to come to this conclusion. God killed Ezekiel's wife and then said, don't be a baby about it. But here's a good principle for interpreting scripture. If you read something and the way you read it makes you think that God is some sort of villainous monster that is not, it's not in line with what you know to be true about God's love or God revealing himself through Jesus, if you read it, the, read it that way, you're probably reading it the wrong way. This is not a story of God killing someone and then telling someone else to get over it. It's quite different. God comes to Ezekiel and tells him, your wife is gonna die tomorrow. I can't imagine what that would be like to know that a day ahead. What, what did they do that night? Did, did he tell her? It's very sad. And then strangely, God says to him, after she dies, here's what I don't want. I don't want you to perform the usual rituals of mourning. Everything that's listed above that is the stuff that people did during that time. In the ancient Near East, when someone died, they would remove their head covering. Um, they, they would shave their heads off and they would take their shoes off. Um, the wailing that it talks about was actually a ritual. They would gather their friends together and they would just mourn out loud. And, and it, was, it was part of what they did in the same way that you might think of a funeral procession coming down the road now and you would look at it and go, oh, someone has died. That's the ritual of what we do. This is very similar to that. So it's interesting that God says to him, when all this stuff happens, when people start bringing you food, don't eat it. Do something different. This is what God's saying to him. Don't respond to this thing you've lost. Don't respond to a situation where you're out of control the same way that everyone else in the culture responds. Don't respond the same way. And it's interesting because, because, um, when Ezekiel's friends show up with all the food, imagine that. They show up and he's not eating it. And, and he hasn't taken his head covering off. He hasn't taken his shoes off. And his friends, it actually says in the passage, they looked at him and said, what's God saying now? Like Ezekiel's friends have figured out that God does weird stuff through him. So at this point, they're like, okay, fine. What's the message God's giving us in this weird thing you're doing right now? And what Ezekiel tells them is he says, here's what God wants you to know. He said, God wants you to know that you have taken the tabernacle that he's given you. You have taken his presence and you've cared about it too much. You've cared about it more than you've cared about him. So then when it's taken away, you don't know what to do. And all you know how to do is mourn and wail and panic. And what I'm telling Ezekiel here is don't do that stuff. Don't respond the same way that everyone else does in the culture. Don't buy all the toilet paper, <laughs> right? Don't do what everyone else is doing because this is what we do, right? When, when we think we're in control and then we realize we're not in control, we panic, we panic and we hold on and we grab things more tightly and we quickly try to fix and we quickly try to control and we start making new plans and doing all that. And I'm not even saying that's bad. 
If things are out of control, it's okay to try to bring control into that. The point that God is making here is you're not looking to me at all. All you're doing now is as soon as something happens, you're panicking, you're trying to fix it on your own, and I'm over here going, let me in. Let me help. Let me be a part of what's going on. And the thing that we realize quite quickly is that sometimes we can control, sometimes we can plan, sometimes we can prep, but there are things in this world that we cannot plan for. Hello, right now. These are the kind of things that a month ago, no one would have expected would happen. The first time you heard the phrase coronavirus, you didn't think to yourself, I better do a whole bunch of stuff because it was way over there and it didn't matter. You, some things you can't plan for and you can't control. You can plan all you want, but when you find out someone has cancer, that's out of your hands. You can prepare all you want, but when someone says they're leaving, when you realize your kid is making bad choices, when you lose your job, when the money's gone, some of those things are just not in our control. So we fight so hard for control only to realize it doesn't work. You can't do it. So if you've ever felt like you were out of control a little bit, like things were out of control, because some of you watching this today or, or sitting in this room are going, coronavirus is the least of my problems. Like, I got no money. I'm alone. The person that loved me doesn't love me anymore. My kids, my relationship with my kids is screwed up. And you're going, that, I wish the only problem I had was, you know, toilet paper. It's bigger than that for me. So if you're here or listening and you feel that way, like you are waking up to the fact that, man, these things are not in my control and I'm scared and I'm frustrated and I'm anxious, what do we do about that? And maybe a better question to help us answer that one is what is God doing when we feel like that? When we realize that we are not in control and we find ourselves in situations that are out of our hands, what is God doing in those moments? And to answer that, I wanna show you two stories. And, and I'm gonna give a big overview of the stories, tell them kind of quickly, and then I wanna highlight a couple specific moments of something that happened in these stories. The first one is in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50 um, is, is a story of a man named Joseph. And if you grew up in church and did kids' church and all that kind of stuff, you've probably heard this story. If you're new to all this and you go, I, I don't know who Joseph is, I'll give you the short version here. Joseph was his father's favorite son. And he knew he was his father's favorite son and he gave his brothers a hard time about it. His brothers didn't like that. So they decided that they were going to kill him. But at the last minute, instead of killing him, they came up with a more humane plan in their mind and they sold him as a slave to some Egyptians who were passing by. That sounds like someone who's not in control of their own situation. Joseph is taken to another country. Now here's what we know about Joseph. Throughout everything he experienced, he relied on God, he, he, he was intelligent, he was hardworking, and he had high integrity. So Joseph is sold to a man named Potiphar, a, a, a guy who's a high-ranking official in the Egyptian nation. And, and Joseph quickly, through his hard work ethic and his character, moves up in the rankings and becomes the head of Potiphar's whole household. Joseph works hard, and as a result of his hard work, his planning and prep, he gets himself in a good spot. But then something else happens that's out of his control. Potiphar's wife 
comes on to Joseph. She, she tries to make a play for him. And Joseph is a person of integrity, so he says no. As a matter of fact, the Bible says she grabs his coat to try to pull him into her bedroom, and, and he jerks away and, and leaves his coat with her. She's mad about this, so when her husband gets home, she says, hey, this guy made a run at me. And Joseph gets thrown in jail. He does the right thing, and he pays a terrible price, completely out of his control. So now Joseph's in prison, but again, he's a hard worker. He has integrity, and he's intelligent. And so Joseph rises up through the ranks of the prison till he's actually in charge of the prison. And one day, another guy that's in the prison comes and he has a weird dream. And, and Joseph says, hey, I think God is helping me understand what that dream means. He interprets it for the guy. And the guy gets out of prison. He's really encouraged by what Joseph said. And, and, and when he leaves, he says to Joseph, I'm gonna put in a good word for you so you can get out of here. But then he forgets. So here Joseph thinks he has this chance to get out, um, but again, out of his control. The guy just forgets about Joseph and goes about his life until Pharaoh, the most powerful, powerful person, got it, in all of Egypt, um, has a weird dream. And at that moment, the, the, the dude that was in prison with Joseph goes, I know a guy. We did some time together. He's good at dreams. So they get Joseph out. Joseph interprets this dream for Pharaoh, um, helps him know that there's gonna be this, this big crisis coming to Egypt, a time of famine. And, and Pharaoh's so impressed with Joseph that he makes him the second person in command of the entire nation of Egypt. And Joseph's job is to prepare the people for the famine. And he does it really well. He sets food away. Um, he, he, he makes a contingency plan. And when the famine hits and there's no food anywhere in the whole area, Egypt has food. So much so that all the other nations are coming to them. And here's where the story gets crazy. Because all of Joseph's brothers, the ones who sold him, they're all out of food. And in the climactic moment of this story, they have to come back to Joseph. And they have to come to him and ask for food, but they don't know it's him. And there's this big reveal where Joseph says, it's me, your brother that you sold into slavery. At which point they all say what you can imagine they would say. They're not church words, but they're like, man, we are really sorry about that thing we did. We shouldn't have done it. And, and Joseph says, you know what? We're good guys and we're gonna work through this. And then he says something so incredible that, that, that I had to show it to you. Remember, this is a guy who over and over and over again has had situations that were completely out of his control and he's trusted God throughout the whole thing. And now he's found himself on the other side of that. And look at what he says to his brothers. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Joseph gets to the other side of a whole season and a whole story of having no control. And he looks at his brothers and he said, we're good. And here's why. Because you meant that for evil, but God turned that into good. What started as evil has become good. You want to know what God's doing during the middle of your situation? You want to know what God is doing while, while we are in this unique time in history? He is working. That's what he's doing. He is at work. He is doing things in your situation. And you might not see it right now. That's the hard part. You might not see his work just like Joseph might not have seen his work until he got to the other side. But the problem we have is we don't stick with him long enough to see him work. We don't stay with him long enough. We don't trust him long enough. We don't let him be in control long enough to ever get to the other side and look at it and go, oh, it looked like evil. <laughs> It looked like it was gonna bring me down. It looked like it was the end of my story. But what started evil turned good because that is the only thing God knows how to do. 
the only thing he knows how to do is take evil and tragedy and suffering and pain and redeem it and make it into something better. That is what he does. Paul says it in Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good and for God's purposes. Not some things, not easy things, not every other thing. <laughs> all things. This is what he does. So whatever your situation is right now, you should rest assured that God is working in it. So what else is he doing? Let me show you another story. This one's from the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel in the Bible comes right after Ezekiel. You know, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about Ezekiel saying, guys, something bad's going to happen. Like God's gonna judge you. Like your, your city is gonna be taken over. Daniel's where that all happens. Daniel's kind of the story of, of how the people of Israel responded once they were in, in um, cap captivity to the Babylonian people. And there's a few stories at the beginning of Daniel um, that, are, that are known pretty well, again, if you've been around church for a while. And one of those is the story about these three guys uh, who were thrown into a fire. And they were thrown into a fire because while they were captured in Babylon, um, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, built a giant statue of himself and said, everyone's got to bow down to it, except these three guys decide they're not going to bow down. And because of that, they get thrown into a fire. So I want to pick up here and show you a little bit of how this story goes. It says, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's the three guys, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. Is there a better example of out of your control than that sentence? Three guys securely tied up, thrown into a fire. No control over their situation. It says, but suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth one looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Just let that blow your mind for a second, what's happening there. And the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their head was singed. Not their clothing wasn't scorched. They didn't even smell like smoke. These guys get thrown into the fire. And when Nebuchadnezzar looks down in there, he says, suddenly these three guys who I threw in tied up are walking around without anything tying them up anymore. And there's another guy in there. You wanna know what God's doing in the middle of your situation, in the middle of our situation? Yes, he's working, but two, he's with you. He's with you in whatever it is you are facing. You might not see him, you might not feel him, but he is with you. And the way you know he's with you is because of how that story ends. Because when they come out of the fire, their clothes aren't messed up, their hair isn't singed. And not only that, they don't smell like smoke. You can't stand at a bonfire for 30 seconds without having to wash the clothes you're wearing three times because that smell sticks to you. It's in your hair. It's on your pillow if you go to bed tonight without, without taking a shower. You can't get away from that smell. These guys are in the middle of the fire and none of that stuff is burned. In fact, only one thing gets burned in the whole thing. You know what it is? The ropes that are holding on to them. They go into the fire bound up and they come out set free. See, if, if we would be willing to let God be in control, 
If we'd be willing to surrender that control, to not panic, to not do it like everyone else does, we might be able to get to the other side and look back and go, it started evil, but he turned it good. We might be able to come through the fire and get through it and go, I'm not burned up. In fact, the only thing taken off me right now is the thing that was holding me back. Like I just went through a really, really tough situation and not only did I survive, I came out and on the other side and I'm a little freer than I was before. He is working and he is with us. And if we will allow those things to be true, if we will rest in those things, if we will invite him in and keep him close, then that is what we'll find. We will find that he protects us, that he works for us, that he takes what looked evil and he turns it to good. And he makes sure that we're protected and that the only things that come off of us are the things that we didn't need to survive to begin with. He's with us and he's working. I'll give you one for free just because I really like this verse. I'll show you one more thing here. It says this, but I said to you, don't be shocked or afraid of them. This is God talking to his people. Look at those words. Don't be shocked or afraid. Those are the two most prevalent words in our culture today. We are shocked and we are afraid. Don't be shocked and afraid of them. The Lord your God is going ahead of you and he will fight for you just as you saw him do in Egypt. God is working and God is with us. But if you're asking the question, where is God right now? Let me tell you where he is. He's ahead. He is ahead of you. God is walking ahead of you. The scripture said, he says he goes before us. And not only that, we have a God who knows how to fight. He knows how to fight the things that we don't know how to fight because we might have the illusion of control, but God is actually in control. And that's what we've got to remember today. There is no road you can walk, no path you can walk, no matter how hard it is, that he isn't a hundred steps ahead of you already. There's no mountain that you have to climb, that he hasn't already climbed many times before and knows the terrain and knows the way. There's no valley that you might have to go down into that he's not waiting there for you with open arms saying, I love you and I know how you'll be safe in this place. God did not wake up this morning and need to check the CDC website and go, oh my me, there's another 30 people in Michigan who've got something going on with them. God didn't wake up this morning and look at Meyer and go, crap, they're out of soap. None of that happened because he knows. He knows. He is playing a different game than the one we are playing. He is not caught off guard. He is not surprised. He is not anxious. And that goes for the big things we're facing and it goes for the smaller ones that maybe affect just us as well. He isn't surprised by any of it. He is with us. He is working and he is way, way out ahead in every moment. And so the question is this, will you let him do it? Will you let him be God? Because there's only room for one. And brother, it ain't you. It ain't me either. There's only space for one person to be God. So we've got to decide. Are we gonna try to stay in control? You can, you can do it. But here's what that life looks like. You are now at the beck and call and the whim of circumstances. I've got news for you and we all know this. The thing we're going through right now, it's, it's gonna end, right? It will, it's already ending in some places. It's gonna end. And then the next thing's gonna come. We're in a world of 24 seven news. There's always something to freak out about. 
There's always something to worry about. When this one's done, there'll just be another one. And if you decide that everything is just based on your own ability to control a situation, you will spend your entire life doing nothing but reacting and responding and feeling confident one day and then terrified the next, feeling in control one moment and then insecure in the next one. But if you give it to him, if you let him be in control of the situation, because he already is, so if you acknowledge it, you might be like Joseph. You might be able to step back and go, you know what? That was crazy. That looked evil. But God turned it into good because he's working. You might be able to be like these guys. Go, you know what? I, I, I went through something. I went through a fire. I don't smell like smoke. I'm okay. I've lost some stuff, but turns out I didn't have to have that anyways. I'm freer now than I was you might actually get on the other side of something and have some security. So that's our question. I'm gonna pray for us in a second. And when I do, uh, we're gonna sing after that. Worship is a great response and a great mechanism for how we outwardly express our desire to give up control and surrender, right? We are good at magnifying circumstances. But when we worship, we minimize circumstances and we magnify God. And what you magnify, you get more of. So in this place, in this room, when the band gets back up here after I play, we're gonna sing. We're gonna sing loud. We're gonna sing like we mean it. Now, for those of you online, this is probably the moment where you go refill your coffee, get some fresh hand sanitizer, um, do any of the, the things that you might do when the preaching part is done. Don't do that today. Stay there. If you're on your phone, sing it out. Worship. And let's all do this together and let's put him back in the spot where he belongs because he's the only one that can carry us through. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We are so, so grateful that you are in control and we're, we're sorry for the times that we try to hold on to it. But God, thank you that you take moments that start out evil and you turn them to good because you're always working on our behalf. God, thank you that you can bring us through something and somehow set us free without letting us get harmed in the process. And God, thank you that you are so far ahead of us that you just know what's happening next. God, we surrender our control to you. And as we worship you now, and as we come together with one voice to acknowledge all that you are, and may we just carry this out into our everyday. And may we give you full control in our lives. Amen.